I'd invite you to turn in your Bible to Mark 9. Our scripture passage this morning is going to be Mark chapter 9, 30 through 37. Our reading continues to be from the English Standard Version translation, which is our customary translation here at Providence Reformed Church. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And, and when he was in the house, he asked them, "What were you discussing on the way?" But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, said to them, "Anyone be first, he must be last." And he took a child and put it to them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my sent me. Let's pray. Our Father, we consider the words this morning of what we find in the Gospel of Mark, and we would pray for your Holy Spirit to be illuminating the word which he himself has inspired. We pray that we would gain not simply bare information, but that we would come to understand the scriptures in the manner for which you inspired them in the first place, that they would tell us, Father, that so that we, your people, would be fully equipped for every good work that you would call us to. Father, we ask this because um, apart from your Spirit working in us to will and to do your good plan, uh, there is not any hope to be faithful or obedient to you. Our Father, uh, we want to give ourselves diligently to your word. In the final analysis... It fully depends upon your grace to work in us. And this is what we seek, that we might be faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus, that we might be salt and light to this generation. In his name we pray. Amen. Now you notice the title this morning, uh, Silence is Not Golden. Uh, often uh, we think of occasions in which it's it's perfectly golden to be silent around our house. If I start singing, Julie says, silent, please. Now, um, and perhaps, guys, you are that way. Your wives uh, don't understand how well you sing and the melody in your heart. And some of you, like me, just simply make joyful noises. 
But what caught my attention as we're looking at this passage, and really there's two episodes here that are connected in terms of what's going on in the life of Christ and in the life of his disciples. What stood out to me was the silence that's involved in both of these episodes. In verses 30 through 32, there is a silence that's involved with the disciples failing to ask Jesus for clarification and understanding of what he was saying. In the second part, there's silence connected to the fact that Jesus caught them red-handed, having what turns out to be a very embarrassing kind of discussion and argument among themselves. In either case, the silence was neither fruitful nor helpful with respect to their spiritual lives and spiritual growth. In either case, their silence was indicative of spiritual immaturity and unwillingness to look at themselves more clearly. Now, this morning, we only really have time to look at the first episode. But even as we look at the first episode, and next week look at the second episode here, the the main concern is going to be precisely what we were looking at last week. It has to do with our relationship with Jesus Christ. It has to do with what happens to us when we are living our lives as Christians, but not living our lives in conscious dependence upon Jesus. What happens to us when we live apart from Christ? What happens to us? How do we respond to circumstances? How do we respond to situations when we are not living with a kind of conscious dependence upon Christ and His Word. That's our main concern. We find ourselves responding to the challenges of life out of the flesh in either fear or pride, which is what we see in both of these episodes. This morning we're just going to focus upon the first several verses and the silence that stems out of fear. But let's, let's set the context here. In the past uh, weeks, in terms of the ministry of Christ, They've left the Galilean area. They've gone north toward uh, Caesarea Philippi. Uh, they've, they've gone to the, the mount, the high mountain upon which Jesus is transfigured. But along the way, even before they get to the Mount of Transfiguration, the apostle uh, Peter has that great confession about Jesus. You are the Christ. Then they have the Transfiguration. And then they have the episode where the disciples who were remaining couldn't uh, cast out uh, the, the demon out of, out of the, that father's son, uh, which was illustrating the incapacity to do any spiritual good when you're actually apart from Christ and not relying upon him. What did we discover last week? Instead of going to prayer to find out why they had no power, they got into an argument with the scribes. They reacted in a carnal way with respect to a very serious situation, and they proved to be no earthly good. They proved to be no good to that father whose son was being afflicted by the devil. Well, now they've left Caesarea Philippi, or they've left the road. They're making their way back to the Galilean area. And, and note what is the context of what they're going to be concerned about. Now, and by the way, if you were to Google map this, which I did, the, the area of Caesarea Philippi, back down to Capernaum, it's only about 33 miles. And you know what's wonderful on Google Maps is you can do how long does it take by automobile, how long by bus, 
And then they got a little icon that shows if somebody's hiking. 11 hours, 33 miles or so, 11 hours. And I'm thinking, that's a pretty good hike. But, you know, the experienced walkers can, can easily do 30 miles in a day. That's just the, the way it is. But we don't, we don't get the sense that they, they push themselves hard to get back to Galilee because Mark is making the point that Jesus was using this time. He didn't want anyone to know really where he and the disciples were. It's very possible they didn't take a main thoroughfare back to Capernaum, that they took one of the other ways in which you can get back. might have been a little bit longer. They probably went at a slower pace. Jesus is teaching them. But what's interesting is that Mark sums up all of the teaching in this one basic statement that Christ makes. The Son of Man is going to be delivered, which means betrayed, into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. So whatever else Jesus was teaching on the way back to Capernaum, whatever else he was saying, what is clear is that Mark points out what was of focal significance and importance. It was the fact that Christ was going to be betrayed. It's the fact that Christ was going to be killed and the fact that he was going to rise on the third day. Now that then brings us to this episode and the consideration of the first silence we see. If you look at the text, you recognize that what the disciples respond or how the disciples respond when Jesus sums up exactly his mission in life, verse 32, but they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So here we see silence in the face of Jesus Christ expressing the most significant truth about his life and ministry. And so we need to break this down a bit. What did they not understand? Well, nothing other than the very center of the gospel. What they failed to understand was nothing other than the central reason why God has sent his son into the world. This lack of understanding is really quite a serious problem. I mean, Jesus is training his disciples. Jesus is expecting them to carry on the work of the kingdom after his departure. Uh, Peter had already made the great confession, you are the Christ. And even at that point, uh, Jesus had given them instruction that he himself was going to suffer many things, that he was going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, that he was going to be killed, and after that he was going to rise. So this wasn't their first exposure at all to the central meaning of why Jesus came. We also need to remember that Jesus had been defining the nature of discipleship in terms of the ultimate purpose of his life, to give his life on the cross, because he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross, and follow me. So even at this stage, we are two and a half years into the ministry of Christ, this is in the last six months leading up to his crucifixion in the spring. Even at this stage, they're failing to understand the central message of the gospel. 
if we stop and pause and think about it, and think about the ministry, what the Gospels have said about the disciples in the context of the ministry of Jesus with them, we can see two reasons. The first is that the disciples, in spite of everything Jesus did and everything Jesus said, continue to have a false conception of the kingdom of God. The disciples still have it in their minds that the chief reason for why God has sent his son, the Messiah, into the world is about the deliverance and the restoration of Israel, that God has promised to deliver the oppressed from the oppressors, therefore he's promised to deliver Israel from Rome. That conception continues to drive their thinking about Jesus and his mission. But there's a second reason. The second reason is a theological deficiency. The disciples do not believe in the gravity of sin. They do not yet see that their own personal sins are what separates them fully from God's kingdom. So they don't really see any connection between the statements that Jesus would make about his dying and their sins being atoned for. With all of the Old Testament giving us sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice for sin, for sin, for sin, with all of that as a background to Jesus, all of what goes on in the Old Testament in terms of the the, the temple, the presence of God, the priest mediating before God, the sacrifice necessary for the atonement of sin, they see none of that in Jesus. They're blind They have no conception, and therefore they don't see Jesus and his coming in connection with sin because they don't see sin as their chief problem. Now, it's not as though Jesus had ever made this this a secret. It's not as though the the gospel story and and what has happened with Christ has has ever kept this hidden. Now, it's true that the gospel of John brings us out more prominently than the synoptics do, But remember, the Gospel of John is is an honest recollection, an inspired recollection. It's a true history of what the disciples were exposed to, what they heard, what they should have learned. For instance, right at the beginning, in the baptism of Jesus, where you've got the ministry of John the Baptist, what does John the Baptist say about Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was John the Baptist's identification of Jesus. And the disciples heard it. Those who were the disciples of of John the Baptist, Peter, Andrew, James, John, some others, they all heard this. The connection was clear. Or consider that uh, uh, not much longer afterwards, Jesus has that, that, that visit with Nicodemus at nighttime. And he's explaining to Nicodemus the gospel of the kingdom And and then he says to Nicodemus, verse 14 of chapter 3, As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So so the connections are, are established there as well. Uh, later on, and this is not in the far recent past of the disciples at this point. Remember, Jesus feeds the 5,000. 
And in John's Gospel, he points out that when Jesus feeds the 5,000, he gives the very next day in Capernaum what's called the the Bread of Life Discourse, where he talks to the disciples about the, the true significance of his coming into the world. He calls himself the Bread of Life. And he says in verse 51 of chapter 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, sure, there's metaphors there. It's figurative language. But, but, but you only have to look at it and say, wow, Christ is connecting himself to what God's given from heaven. Christ is connecting his life as bread, and he's giving his life for the sake of the world. Clearly, the death of Christ is central in these messages. The connection with sin, John chapter 8, disputing with the, uh, the Jewish leadership. Jesus says two things that are so significant. Just in, in the span of three verses, John chapter 8, verse 34, then, 30, then 36, he says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, you couldn't say something more significant or clear about how sin is the greatest problem that anyone can ever face than essentially saying everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But then it goes on in verse 36 to say, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. John chapter 10. Jesus is, is, is again very specific. He's using figures of speech and metaphors to describe who he is. And this is the Good Shepherd passage. And, of course, the Good Shepherd passage is going to connect with their thinking of in terms of the Old Testament, where the Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. Well, why shall we lack nothing if the Lord is my shepherd? Because Jesus puts it this way. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my sheep and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, The point is that Jesus, in a number of ways, had conveyed the central message of his coming into the world, and his disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand the good news because they failed to understand the bad news. But we shouldn't be overly judgmental or too hard with respect to the disciples. Most people. Even church people don't understand the bad news. We're told repeatedly today that the bad news is unjust social institutions of many different kinds. Or, as one Reformed writer has said, on the whole, the popular Christian literature I have reviewed locates the source of our problems far more readily in one's parents one's past and one's pain than in one's pervasive depravity. Unless you have a firm grounding in biblical teachings, these materials will surely convince you that low self-esteem and unmet needs are the problem, not indwelling sin. Jesus said the problem, the bad news, is the human heart. 
that the sin and the injustice that's in the world happens to exist first in the core of our very natures. That's the bad news about life. Or to say this in a way that that might make us squirm, but it is so true. We are personally and individually our own greatest enemy spiritually. And individually, we are enemies to the peace and happiness of all people around us. We know this is true because it's what the Bible says. Because none of us love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And do you realize that if you don't love your neighbor as you love yourself, you are sinning against your neighbor. And none of us do unto others as we would have them do unto us, at least consistently. And the measure to which we do not treat others the way we would want to be treated ourselves is an indication that we're not loving them, but we're unloving them. We're not putting them first, we're putting ourselves first. We're not being the kind of person we ought to be to them, we're being the kind of person we ought not to be to them. We're not being the godly friend we ought to be, we're in fact behaving as an enemy of sorts to the people around us. It's actually hard to hold this truth clearly in front of us at all times. It's hard to believe that the situation is really that severe about ourselves. It is far easier to think, I'm somewhat sinful, I'm somewhat fallen, I'm somewhat a broken person, but generally I'm a pretty good sort. (laughs) Because we measure the standard by other human beings. And we don't measure ourselves by Christ. But it's because of the reality and truth of what the Bible says about us, because of this bad news, that's why Jesus had to be delivered into the hands of men. That's why Jesus had to be killed. And that's why Jesus had to be raised from the dead three days later because he was delivered over for our transgressions and he was raised for our justification. Now, to continue considering what's going on here in this passage, we we recognize that in the face of what they did not understand, the disciples chose to remain silent. This was really a kind of a deadly silence because they failed to pursue the most important truth that Jesus was revealing about his mission. And their silence was prompted by fear. They were afraid to ask him. But fear? A fear of what? Why be afraid? Why let fear? Fear keep you silent. 
Why not ask Jesus for clarification and understanding? Now, we need to think existentially at this moment and consider ourselves personally. Why does fear keep us from asking questions with respect to those who could answer those questions? Well, all of us in school experienced a fear of raising your hand because you thought your question was going to be stupid. We fear showing ourselves to somehow being ignorant or stupid. We're also afraid at times because we're afraid we won't like the answer that's going to be given. We're also afraid because sometimes we fear the answer will make us even more fearful. But notice how each of these fearful reactions is a form of self-protection. I don't want to appear stupid. Why? I don't want people to think I'm a stupid person. Why? What's, all, what's that all about? Oh, pride. I don't, I don't want to ask any question here because maybe I won't like the answer. Maybe the answer I'm given won't be in agreement with what I want. Oh, so you're protecting what you want by your ignorance. You're, pro you're protecting what you want by not getting an answer. You're protecting yourself. That's, that's pride. Or I'm afraid that the answer will make me more fearful. How bad is it out there? Don't tell me. I don't want to know. Why? Well, because the answer will make me even more afraid. You see, the kind of fear that the disciples were experiencing before Christ at this time was a fear rooted in their own pride. Listen to what Scripture says to us about pride. Proverbs chapter 16. Often it's just verse 18 that's quoted, but 19 and 20 pertain as well. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the rich. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. If, if only the disciples had applied Proverbs 16.20 to their situation at that particular point, if only they had been willing to give thought to the word that Jesus had said as opposed to reacting in fear, if only they had been willing to trust the Lord rather than to be afraid of what Jesus might say, they would have been blessed. But in their fear and in their pride, they did not trust Christ. Then there are consequences that actually flowed 
from their and their fear. What they did on that particular day did not promote their spiritual growth. It did not promote progress toward maturity. But it actually inhibited their spiritual progress. Because they did not ask Jesus to give them understanding, we can see two consequences which show up later in the gospel story. First, they were kept from being prepared when those actual events began to happen. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right after Jesus, or just before Jesus is going to be delivered and betrayed into the hands of men, there they are with Christ in the garden. The disciples, we know from the story, were not prepared to pray with Christ. He chides them. He says, could you not keep watch for an hour with me? He asked them to pray for him. They're not prepared to pray for him. They fail to pray for him. And Jesus also encouraged them to pray for themselves. And they failed to do that as well. They were not prepared. But then when the events actually took place, they were terribly, terribly confused over what all of this meant. Uh, they failed to believe that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They scattered and went into hiding when he was arrested. Peter uh, uh, fulfills the prophecy that he was going to deny Christ because Peter wasn't ready. There was a reluctance on the day of resurrection to actually believe the first-hand testimony of the, of, the, of the lady disciples who met with Jesus. And then Thomas. Thomas hears from the other ten disciples. He has risen from the dead. We've seen him. And Thomas says, unless I see the nail prints in his hand and can put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And a week later, when Jesus appears to Thomas, then and only then does Thomas fall before Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. They were utterly unprepared for what was going to happen because they were afraid out of pride to ask Jesus for understanding of what he meant. Now, I'm going to close on that note with this application. Mark doesn't seem to have made a big point of this application because I think he understood that it was an obvious point. The obvious point is we must not follow our fears as Christians. That our fears are going to inhibit our growth spiritually. And especially we are not to follow our fears with respect to the things which God has said in his word. Now, this, this may not be quite where all of you are. But over your Christian life, you will probably have felt this at some particular point or other. That certain doctrines, certain truths, certain things we read about in the scriptures alarm us, concern us, 
We don't understand them. And we find ourselves afraid to ask what this might mean. In the Reformed faith, we have been willing to deal with the most difficult doctrines in Scripture. But in my early Christianity and in, in, in my acquaintance with Christians outside of the Reformed world, in my own experience growing up, again and again, I was told, don't ask that question. The big one, the P word, predestination. Don't ask that question. We don't talk about that in our church. Don't talk about election. We don't talk about that in our church. That's too difficult to understand. Even in my early preaching ministry, I had people come up to me. I'm preaching out of Ephesians chapter 1 where election and predestination shout at you. I would have people come up and say, those are hard things. Do you really think you should preach that? Do people really need to know that? A great fear. A great fear to embrace the things which God teaches in His Word. The disciples were afraid to ask Jesus about His death and what all that was going to mean. And so many Christians today, they read their Bibles, but they read them selectively. Old Testament. Because I don't want to read about the fact that God commanded the Israelites to clear out the nations so the children of Israel go. I don't want to read When we look ahead in Mark's Gospel, we're going to deal with the doctrine of hell, which is what people today don't want to hear or think about. When you look at the map of evangelical churches in the United States today, hell has virtually disappeared. That's too fearful. I don't want to read about it. I don't want to ask questions about it. But as New Testament scholars have reported again and again and again, no one spoke about hell more deeply or more passionately. It's the application. We fear. What is we should sit with a deep spiritual hunger. This way in First Peter, he says, "Put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, slander." By it, you may grow up in salvation. Sin good. If the Lord is good, His Word is good. And if the Lord is good, then we need all that He has taught. Jesus Himself said, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. Not just the Gospels, not just the Psalms, not just the Epistles, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And if we're going to abide in Christ,
abide in us. We're going to find ourselves walking faithfully with Jesus. We can't be apart from Jesus. And if we will not embrace his word and all of us' word, in a way manner, we're living apart from Christ. What does God want of us as believers? To love Jesus. But which Jesus? The Jesus who himself said that this word was his. To love Christ is to love the scriptures. It's to abide in his truth. It's to live for him. Let's pray. Our Father, God, and even as we celebrate the gospel, that we would understand that the gospel is that which embraces all of who Jesus is and all of what Jesus has done and all that Jesus has taught us. And that when we commune with, with the triune God today around this table, we're once again pledging ourselves to be faithful to Jesus, to faithful to all of his teachings, to be faithful to his work upon the cross, to be faithful to the life that he's called us to, a life that means that we will believe in his word. Help us then to recognize that we who build our lives on the word of Jesus build our lives upon his rock. And all the forces of the world and all the forces of the devil can never shake us when we're grounded in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.